How do we nurture our spiritual paths? Through a lifelong process of having experiences and striving to understand them and make use of them. We do so by trial and error through learning things first from our parents, family, friends, and neighbors, and then through the things we hear, see, read, and find out as we become educated, grow up, and become worldly. Daily we use both our growing empirical, rational, scientific understanding to analyze our experiences and develop rational concepts, and use our growing, intuitive, imaginative, mystical insights to guide our insights and actions. Think of an early time when you understood something important. How did you learn it? When I was about four years old, sitting with my mother in the backyard and talking about nature, probably I was interested in some insect on the ground or in the sky. She said we were all parts of nature and that each of us had special parts to play in its constant changes. Those ideas shaped my life. When I was about 11, I was given two books by a neighbor who was discarding them as I cleaned out his garage, a book on yoga and Gandhi's autobiography, My Experiments with Truth. These books shaped my life, as Stephen was telling about once it shaped his childhood beliefs. Those and thousands of other experiences have shaped my rational understanding. But how about early experiences when you were caught in wonder, swept by feelings of unity with all of reality, grasped life as a whole, or were, was embraced in ecstasy? I cannot tell you how many times that's happened for me with music. As my wife can testify, I hardly get through with a concert without crying at some point or just feeling overwhelming joy. And how many times in nature, again, was I just swept with the awe of it all. But also with people, learning from people, listening to people, and getting to talk with people. I remember feeling that in so many different ways. We did not learn to ride a bike just with our reason, and we did not experience ecstasy without both our intuitive imagination and some rational pondering and learning. Our spiritual paths are the life choices we make throughout our lives. We do not think we're religious, maybe not even spiritual, but we put our faith in certain things and make our subsequent choices based upon those things. Then we have faith in them. Spirituality is what we do in our aloneness. And religion is the philosophical and mystical part of what we do with our togetherness. Because we are, of course, alone, ultimately. And yet, we are so much of our lives together with other people. I think everyone is spiritual because they believe in something and base their life choices on what they believe. Spirituality is not a fixed possession, 
It is a dynamic quest. It's, faith is not something you have or lose. They are the hopes and dreams that you hold unto the course of your lives. And yes, they change for most of us. We lose some, we get others. Sometimes we think we've lost them and they come back to us. I also believe that most people are religious because they discover that they cannot endure or flourish without other people in social groups. And they choose to join with some of them in collective endeavors that include statements of principles, rituals, and celebrations, actions, and dialogues. These communities we choose, they lift us up and they make us whole, and at times they also disappoint us and sometimes break our hearts. Just as we in our aloneness also discover and create our own wholeness, but also continue to periodically be disappointed by who we are and what we do. Each of us has part of the truth and no one has all of the truth. Everyone is faithful and flawed, both saved and searching, has strong beliefs and profound doubts. 21st century humanity has increasingly a shared perspective because contemporary global conditions compel us to develop a common reality that allows us to communicate and cooperate by sharing scholarship, collaborating in scientific discovery, using technologies, enjoying our creations, and healing our wounds, as Stephen helps so many people do. Intuitively, most human beings realize that each of us, as part of the truth, but not all of us, and that we can learn useful things from almost any other person. Then now, of course, this shared perspective is not universal, but it is global. and includes a significant and growing proportion of our world's population. As I hope we all remember, our Unitarian Universalist religious denomination has eight principles and six traditions. The second of six principles relate directly to my address today. The second declares our acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. And the sixth declares that we share the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Three of the six traditions speak directly to my address today. The first tradition declares that we seek direct experience of that transcendent mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures that moves us to the renewal of spirit and openness to the forces that create and uphold life. What a Unitarian Universalist sentence. A little overlong, a little overcomplicated, because it was written by a committee. And when you write things a committee, they get complicated because everybody wants a little piece of the action. But the point is that we want it religion direct. We want to have some of those experiences for ourselves. We don't want to just be handed a book and say, that's it. Well, this is the dogma. Follow it. And you better do what your minister says or your rabbi says. Right? That's not our way. And the third declares the wisdom of the world religions inspires us to our ethical and spiritual lives. And I spent a lot of my 40 years of ministry trying to share that with as many in a denomination as possible. And the sixth declares our embrace of the spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions that celebrated the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. 
But in this context of our society today, do you realize that only 47% of Americans now belong to a religious congregation? It was 70% in 1999. Half of Americans have changed their religions in the course of their lives. 25% of, of our marriages are interfaith unions. In California, 27% of California residents are foreign-born. Half of California's children have a foreign-born parent, as my children did and do. The United States of America is the most religiously diverse nation on earth. California is the most diverse state, and the greater Bay Area is probably one of the most spiritually diverse regions in the country. If we are seeking greater diversity and more members in our congregations, reaching out to people who share a 21st century perspective, but grew up in and came from other religious traditions and cultures, is an obvious effective path. I bet most of us have a dentist or a doctor or another helping professional. Came from a different religion, came from a different country. And have you just had your teeth done or have you actually asked them, well, what do you believe? You know, how does your Islam relate to the Islam you grew up with? How does your Buddhism relate to the Buddhism that so many people seem to practice now in America that they didn't grow up with? Americans are not alone in this exploding diversity. Billions of people throughout the world are well-educated by contemporary standards and like most of us combine flourishing ancestral roots with an increasingly shared global outlook. My first date with my first wife, a Hindu Jain mix of her parents and thoroughly Indian, I started a poem and I lost my place and she finished it from memory. And I thought, I am way out of my league here. But of course, that was, that's a very seductive feeling, you know, <laughs> particularly for males probably. Many still base parts of their faith in ancestral religious traditions, but millions of those in every faith also embrace contemporary understandings of reality and are accepting and tolerant of people very dissimilar from themselves. Many who do not think they are religious or even spiritual live lives of integrity, con conscience, and principle, strive to transcend selfishness and greed, and have their own mystical experiences and intuitive wisdoms as well as our globally pervasive rational systems. When I served the Sacramento Society, it was kind of known as a really hardwired humanist congregation. Now, one thing that ministers get to do is they get to know people pretty well if they're fortunate and are there for some time. So after a while, I realized that five of the most hardcore humanists that didn't think they believed in anything, weren't spiritual at all, had all had classical mystical experiences. And I got them to have a session of adult educations where they each told, and all their friends came in, they hadn't heard that. They, were, you know, they hadn't told their friends because they were afraid their friends wouldn't understand that they'd be ashamed or think, oh my goodness, this guy's getting, you know, he's losing his marbles. Or, you know, she's using her, losing her you know, engineering training or something. Much of the spiritual growth among people in the last two centuries have been because We've begun to realize what the Buddhists and many people in the East discovered thousands of years ago, which was the unconscious. And the fact, 
fact that we were continually working on these two planes, the rational analytic kind of plane and the mystical intuitive kind of plane, and, and we're constantly going back and forth. And that's not just people that you traditionally think of, but Charles Darwin, for instance, only revealed biological evolution, but in his later Descent of Man, argued that the prosperity of our social groups depends upon their altruistic cooperation. Albert Einstein in his credo said that we are each an element within a complicated web of interrelationships with a single whole, both spectators and actors within the great drama of existence. Dr. Francis Collins, a geneticist who led the Human Genome Project said, at its most fundamental level, it's a miracle that there's a universe at all. An open-minded person is practically forced to conclude that there is a mind behind all this, a profound truth that lies outside of scientific explanation. While Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, professor and Pulitzer Prize winner said, scientists divide, discriminate, but we realize that the reassembly of the parts is different from the whole before it was broken into parts. I'm a strong believer that we're losing a lot if we don't look back at the historic religions. Yes, from my standpoint, there's a good deal of nonsense in every one of them. But at the same time, there's also wonderful, beautiful things and very deep things, things that are worth study. So I urge you to do that, and that's what my book is about, really. It's not saying, believe what I believe or have the experiences I had. I'm saying have your own, but realize that each one of these traditions can enrich them. I mean, I love the Hindu concept of the Brahmanatman because it makes more sense as an overall God concept because there's a creative, constantly evolutioning force on the other side. And then the other side, there's this, that we each have a little piece of that, the Atman, that we have part of that spiritual whole. A soul, if you want to use a, you know, a Christian, Judeo-Christian kind of term. And I love the Hindu idea also that Vishnu is the evolutionary god. So he comes back when things have gotten too chaotic. Sort of like we keep wishing for the ideal leader that's going to come back and you know, put it all together for us with no trouble. <laughs> Not likely to happen. Another concept I love from Hinduism is that they say life ought to have four stages. You know, in our traditional kind of Victorian thing, you know, it goes up to a peak about 50, right? And then it's all downhill after that. And of course, that's difficult, increasingly difficult for us because in the old days, almost up to the middle of the 1800s, right? Most people didn't live over 50, so it didn't matter so much. Now, most of us do. Very fortunate in our time, right? So they say there's four stages. The student stage where you're not supposed to know stuff, you're supposed to learn stuff. The second stage, the kind of young adult stage to middle age, young and middle age, where you're supposed to be sexy. You're supposed to want children. You're supposed to want a family. You're supposed to want possessions. You're supposed to want power. But then about the grandparent stage, 
you're supposed to begin to get over it and not want more and more things, more and more power, more and more money, more cars, more houses. And then the last stage it says, okay, you're gonna die, so you better spend some time trying to prepare for that. And maybe beginning to think beyond yourself and beyond your part in history. You know, what, what, what's gonna last that you have done or could do before you go? I think that's very useful. And I could go through each of the religions, but I don't want to hold you over too much from the service. But I mean, do you realize that there's several million Buddhists in the United States that didn't grow up as Buddhists? They're not ancestral Buddhists, but it's their primary practice. It's a major part of my practice because it just makes sense to me. And I find it very useful and I'm so type A and rushing around doing things that it's very good for me because it quiets me down. It makes me take the time that I need to take. And we could go through each of them. I mean, Judaism, I'm a Spinoza Jew and I'm a Martin Buber Jew, okay? I love the idea that God is in the between, that it's, God is a verb. God, I love the old, the old, the high holy day story where the rabbinical teacher teaches his students, it's Yom Kippur and they say, well, how do we really learn how we should do Yom Kippur? You know, the holiest day of the year, the day of atonement. He says, go watch this tailor, but don't let him know that you're watching him. Gets down a book, big book. These are the sins that I've been committing all year. These are the sins I committed against other people, and I'm trying to rectify them with them if I can. And these are the sins I committed against you, God, and against the universe, against life, and I beg your forgiveness. And I said, this was remarkable. He's tracked all life, all, all year, day by day. But one student hangs back, and he said, wait, wait. He's getting down a bigger book. And he opens it, and he says, this is the day where you have forgiven me, these are the sins that life has committed against me this year, that God, you've committed against me. And you are forgiving me, I'm forgiving you, Lime, right? Love that story, right? Because my Judaism is a Judaism where God, it's a God worth arguing with, and I argue almost weekly, right? About my own frailties, about the world's frailties, about some of the things and people I don't particularly like, right? Why are they there? Why do they happen? I'm a Jesusian. I'm not a Christian. Jesus is a moral model, an ethical model for me. But he's not the one son of the only God. I think his discovery is that we're all children of God. We're all children of, of reality. We all have a part of that. But then, you know, as religious history tends to get mangled in each of these traditions, a little bit or a lot. It happened, I think, with Christianity too. And Islam, Islam I know, you know, we're so filled with things that if we go and we meet an Islamic person, most of it are, we just can hardly wait to say, well, you know, do you have any relatives that are terrorists? Or, you know, why do you treat your women so badly? And, and of course, it would be useful to remember that in the more than a million Islamic Americans, 
the women are among the highest educated and they're among the highest income groups. So it's not like they're all in Purda, right? In fact, they may be your dentist or your doctor or your helping professional or your accountant. So to me, part of my practice every day is to get down on my face like a Muslim down first thing in the morning and I'm not submitting to Allah or Muhammad, I'm submitting to reality because you don't have any choice. And you better remember every day that there's a real world out there and you know, you can't make it. It's going to, it's going as Stephen said, it's going to make you, really. So each of these religions have things to teach us and I just think it's useful to go there. Look at the history, choose the things that make sense for you, discard the things that don't, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That was my point today. Thank you for having me.